Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 59 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. The Redux, if you will. Um, I've said things about it on uh, social media I recorded episode 59 uh, two weeks ago, but unfortunately it was the night before um, the cold my son gave me really took hold, and I was having severe trouble reading the screen and being able to pronounce words and things like that, so after listening to about maybe 15 minutes of it, I just said, you know what, I think I should do this over, and I've said so on facebook and um instagram and every every place else so you guys know what it is so yeah that's pretty much where things are right now as far as podcast goes uh let's see uh gaming wise i've been you know playing the usual stuff uh division two um street uh, street, excuse me streets of rage four uh there's a new game that i got i'm gonna pull up my uh, steam library real quick because I can't remember the name of it but it's another roguelike or roguelite or however it's pronounced but it's a lot of fun uh the name of the game is called tiny rogues that's what it is and I'm having a lot of fun with it I play it almost every day um it's a perfect dungeon running roguelite and you know with some bullet hell aspects to it and it's a lot of fun um, so yeah, I'm playing that. I'm seriously anticipating, um, what was it, uh, um, Atari 50, which is coming out, I think, oh, next week, November 11th. Awesome. Beautiful. So I'm going to get that for sure, because that's got, uh, Atari Arcade games on it. That's got Atari 2600, 5200, 7800 games on it. You know, I'm really looking forward to that because that's going to be something I'm going to play um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to um, you know when I finally get all my stuff together and start streaming. Um, that's going to take longer than I I'm, I hate to say it's going to take longer than anticipated. Um, I'm having some serious financial difficulties right now, and it's going to take me a little while to dig out from under them. I mean. Um, I'm still planning on doing my arcade runs to Detroit, going back up to, uh, Crazy Quarters up in Bay City, if I could swing it, go back out to Retro Electric, um, and, you know, chop it up with, uh, Carl and his wife, Nicole, really good people, like I said, oh, that's right, um, the, uh, Retro Electric review is coming soon, I think it's somewhere in the mid-60s, so it's coming very soon. Uh, let's see what else. So yeah, I think the trip to Chicago might be uh, put in the mothballs for now. Um, God only knows there are enough places up there that I really want to go to. I mean, of course you got the arcades in Chicago, but there's a bunch of them up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, which is about what, an hour and a half drive, I think from Chicago or something like that 
and I really want to go up there, spend a night up there, and just go and just hit a bunch of arcades, then come back down to Chicago, hit the usual suspects, then go home. That's the plan. We'll see if I can pull that off. But yeah, that's going to cost quite a bit of money. <laughs> um, you know, between the car rental and the uh, hotels and food and fuel and admission to all these places. Yeah, it's going to take a pretty penny for me to... to uh, to accomplish but you know you never know what the new gear will bring stay tuned as always i mean i'm not giving up on it it just may have to be shelved for a while uh let's see what else is going on um yeah i had an interesting shift at the arcade last night uh last night being uh september or excuse me not september geez november 5th um you know uh, because of all the high winds in the area uh the power kept flickering on and off um, it basically killed my uh, game playing before my shift started because I had to help my coworker, you know, get everything up, back up and running. Um, the first couple of times it happened, a couple of the old school machines glitched, so that required um, shutting them off at the breakers and turning them back on, and you know, telling all the customers, you know, hey, I need to shut all these machines off for a second and reset them. Hang in there. Uh, because I did notice when the power started flickering, uh, because, you know, the high winds and stuff, um, a lot of customers just walked away from the machines and walked out the door. Um, yeah, I thought that was an interesting choice by some people. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I just went, you know, I just went about, you know, getting everything up and running. And by the time everything was, uh, you know, hunky-dory, it was time for me to start my shift. So I didn't get to play of very many games like I normally do. I think I played one game of Robotron and um, something else that I can't remember right now. And, uh, you know, just, you know, went through, you know, went through my shift last night. It was, you know, the, it was pretty well attended. I mean, the best attendance in a few months at least. Um, you know, had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, married couples with their kids coming through, you know, three, four, five at a time. Um, you know, it was a good night. It was, you know, a really good night. So, you know, I'm just glad that the weather sort of stabilized and uh, the, you know, there wasn't any more power flickering or anything. So, you know, it was just, you know, a nice little night once everything settled down. Um, let's see. So, yeah, I checked emails and voicemails and social media, and once again, there's not anything out there for me to answer or comment on or add to lists of reviews or, you know, doing uh, rundowns and stuff like that. So, once again, uh, you guys got any questions at all? I mean, I know the most, most of you guys who listen are of an age with me, so, you know, you, you know at least as much as I know about games, if not more. But still, you know, we could have a little conversation about, you know, this game or that game. Hey, hit me up. Brian at gmail.com. Also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, social media is up and running. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Um, all those uh, accounts are pretty much linked together. So if I make a post on Instagram, it immediately posts on Facebook uh, Twitter and Tumblr, which is how I wanted it. You know, now that I can just do one post and everything is ready, ready to go out there. So, on uh, Instagram, I am at Arcade Addict Brian. 
uh, on Facebook, just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. Uh, you put in Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. There's a discussion group that goes along with that. On uh, Twitter, I am at ArcadeAddict underscore B, and Tumblr is Tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So once again, multiple ways of getting hold of the show. I know you guys are out there listening. A precious few of you actually contribute to the show, you know, which... You know, like I said, your contributions to this show go right back into it. Um, I have a, a little financial nest egg that I've been seriously resisting using towards paying bills off and actually going to be using it for uh, a Detroit arcade run. I've got enough to probably rent a car for the for the day and admission and food and fuel for to go to like three or four different places. So that's what I'm probably going to do. I'm probably going to do it um, the way I did my trip to Chicago, where after I leave a place, I'll, you know, talk about the place and then I'll uh, edit that up and put it in future episodes. So everything that you donate to this show goes right into uh, making the show what it is and possibly better. So, yeah, if you are uh, so... Uh, inclined to uh, donate, uh, go to my uh, Anchor page, which is anchor.fm slash C-O-A-A. Click on the donate button. You can donate as little as a dollar a month uh, or upwards. I think the maximum is $10 a month. Um, I have a listener, Benjamin, who donates $5 a month and a uh, listener, I think it's uh, Kevin, he donates $10 a month. So that money's been coming in and it's been sitting in my account. I haven't touched it since I got back from Chicago. And, you know, like I said, that's going towards uh, arcade runs and stuff. So, like I said, if you want to help me you know, improve the podcast and keep it ro- keep it rolling, you know, hey, just, uh, you know, do- donate a few dollars. It all adds up. So, you know, any contribution you can make in whatever way uh, is a- sincerely appreciated. So, yeah. Anyway, let's get right on to the show. Enough of that. Um, I've got uh, some... A couple of really good topics to talk about in and on the road this segment to end the show. So let's get right on to it. Top 10s. Top 10s. Beat-em-ups. Now, being an arcade veteran, I love a good beat-em-up. I mean, ever since 1985, it's been a a great uh, genre that I've seen, you know, develop over the last what oh, what we're at 37 years now so yeah i mean you know i love the beat em up genre almost as much as any uh genre there is you know of course i'm i'm particular to shooters but you know you know i you know like i said a good beat em up always you know gets me going a little bit um there's something cathartic about just wading into a crowd of enemies and beating them all down than to go up against the boss at the end of level and kicking his butt. Um, what made it more fun was doing it along with your friends, so if you beat the game, you could share the victory with them. Now, don't get me wrong, this was a very tough list to make. Uh, probably tougher than any other top 10 with the possible exception of uh, video games of 1980 and 81, and probably 82 as well. Um, those these four top ten lists have been really difficult for me. Um, 
every t- every time I thought I had the list set up and ready to go, and I could start working on you know descriptions and experiences I had with the game, I would either find or remember another game that was actually a better experience. I think this list went through like six revisions before I was happy with the top ten that I selected. So once again, uh, top ten in no particular order. Um, I just thought these were the best beat 'em ups that I have played in my experience. So let's get right on to it. Okay, let's start with the more or less the elephant in the room, Final Fight. Um, this was uh, the game that made Capcom the king of the beat-em-ups for at least four years. Um, the action could be fast and frenetic, sometimes even unfair, but the action just kept, kept you coming back. Um, being able to select from three different characters with very different fighting styles also gave the game replayability. But make no mistake, the game was a quarter eater of the highest order, and if you didn't know what you were doing, you were spending two, three, four dollars on it, you know, just to get towards the end. And then, of course, the end is really difficult, <laughs> and it goes from there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... I have memories galore of playing Cody, finding out that he was a knife fighter and using that to my advantage, you know, using Mike Hagar, um, who's the wrestler and pile driving people into oblivion. And of course, using Guy with his lightning quick combos, you know, I really love this game, you know, and a lot of the iterations that Final Fight has had since then, particularly on the Super Nintendo. Okay, Final Fight. Alright, uh, next one is a tie. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Tower of Doom, and Shadow over Bastara. Uh, when Tower of Doom came out in 1994, I was completely blown away. Uh, this was a, yet another combination of Dungeons and Dragons and video games, uh, but done so very, very well. Uh, I immediately started spending money on this game to learn it and combing through the game gaming magazines for tips and information. The characters are unique, the monsters you face are, are on point as to how they look and how they fight. Uh, the story has multiple paths which gives serious replayability considering there are multiple characters to play. Four in Tower of Doom and Shadow Over Mistara has six. Um, and of course it takes place on my favorite D&D campaign world, so what's not to love about it? Um, Shadow over Mistara was more of the same in 1996, just more refined with a more in-depth storyline and two more characters to play and um, much more easier combos to pull off. I mean, love both these games. I have um, Chronicles of Mistara on my Xbox 360 and also on Steam. So anytime I get the itch, you know, I just fire either one of those up and I play for a while. I love both these games. They're fantastic. Okay, Streets of Rage 4 for the PC. Now, when I first heard this was coming out, I was really skeptical about it. There hadn't been a Streets of Rage game since 1994 for the Genesis, which was a lot of fun to play, even though it was really hard. Uh, When I saw someone streaming it, I was really intrigued by it. Um, I bought it off Steam pretty soon after that, started playing it, and I love it. Now, don't get me wrong, this game can be infuriating. One of the streamers I used to watch on Twitch more or less based his streaming off how furious the game would make him, and he would just rage out. Um, Another one who is one of the coolest and most chill streamers, you know, shout out to uh, Mad Zero, uh, is uh, he just laugh about how cheap the game can be. You know, it took a lot for him to, you know, rage at the game, but even the game would test his patience. Another one I watched is uh, Sayor. 
uh, who's a British streamer. He's probably the best at the game I have ever seen. You know, he uh, streams um, Streets of Rage 4 survival runs every Friday, and usually I'll watch him before I have to go to work. And, you know, I'm just amazed at how good he is because, you know, the game is really tough. Yeah, I've, and also people have come out with mods for the game, which either, you know, make it harder or make it, you know, a little bit more fair and things like that. So, I mean, now it's gone to the people who mod the game, and which, of course, gives the game more survivability. It's pretty cool. Uh, all the characters in the previous games are well represented, sometimes two or three times. You know, like the main characters, like... Uh, uh, Axel Stone and uh, Blaze Fielding. Though they have like all four of their characters represented, like Streets of Rage one through three on the Genesis, and of course there's Streets of Rage four modern day older look, which is actually cool because you see like you know Axel Stone in Streets of Rage four is like in his like late thirties, probably early forties. You know Blaze, you know her age is indeterminate but she still looks as good as she does and you actually see you know like um inner you know sort of storyline interactions with the characters like um another one of the main characters i think he started in streets of rage 3 i think but you know he's got a he's got a son his name you know he's you know skate he's like in uh you know, he got in Streets of Rage 4. I think he was in Streets of Rage 3. And then a new character who's uh, another daughter of his. Actually, I take that back. No, Skate is uh, that other character's brother. And uh, Cherry is his daughter. So um, so uh, Skate is Cherry's uncle. <laughs> it's really, really interesting. Um, and then, of course, you know... You have other characters from Streets of Rage 3 and, you know, hidden characters and all such stuff. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love it. But, yeah, it could certainly give you Ajita. You know, there's no doubt about that. Okay, moving right along. Alien vs. Predator. When I first saw this game, which I think was at the Church Street Station Arcade, I was immediately hooked. I mean... At the time, I had zero interest in the human-slash-cybernetic characters. I only had eyes for the Predators. Um, I liked the fact that their fighting styles were similar, but they went about their business in the game a little differently, and they also had different personalities as well. It was really cool. As it turns out, of course, the female character in the game is the most powerful, with a lot of uh, Ryu Street Fighter special moves in her arsenal. The storyline was great, which plays on the military and the, uh, I think, Whalen Corporation conspiring with the aliens in this massive plot, which the characters fight uh, to uh, fight against to uh, either reveal or destroy. Um, the game gets really tough, although if you're proficient in beat-em-ups, you should be able to get to level 3 without too much difficulty, but then you're in for a huge battle as the story unfolds. This game, Stone Cold Classic. You know, no two ways about it. Okay, next one. Knights of the Round. Oh, I love... This is another beat-em-up by Capcom that I love from the moment I first saw it. I cannot remember where I saw Knights of the Round for the first... I think I actually played it on the Super Nintendo before I actually saw it in the arcade. 
I think that's how it went. But just like its predecessors, Black Dragon and King of Dragons, the game had strong RPG elements to it, including a leveling system. As your character progressed, his health increased, his, his armor and weapons got more elaborate, and he actually, I think, did more damage. I'm not 100% certain about that, but I think that's how it went. Uh, just like in Final Fight, you choose from three characters, Lancelot, Percival, and Arth King Arthur himself. Lancelot was the quick one and my personal favorite, Percival was the slower, stronger guy, and Arthur was right in the middle. Uh, the story wasn't very elaborate, just make your way through the countryside and attack King Garibaldi to overthrow him. You can see where Tower of Doom and Shadow over Mastara got their influence from. You know, this is like a direct descendant of those two games. King. Double Dragon 2 The Revenge. I have zero problem with saying this game was superior to the classic, original Double Dragon. The action was faster, the enemies were tougher to defeat, you had more obstacles and issues to deal with to complete levels in the game, and less room for error to do so. Um, I first encountered this game in an arcade in downtown Vancouver, British Columbia back in 1989, and I proceeded to throw a lot of my spending money into it. I don't think I found another machine until I moved to Florida in 1993, uh, but when I did, I jumped right back into it. This is one of the best beat-em-ups I've ever played, and like I said, this game is much, much better than its predecessor, and that was a great game too. Taito and Technos hit a home run with the sequel. It's just a shame that Double Dragon 3 was so terrible. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've seen multiple streams where uh, guys are uh, streaming arcade games either off actual machines or through uh, emulation. You know, almost every last one of them has the exact same opinion about Double Dragon 3. It's one of the worst worst video games of all time, in my opinion, never mind being a, a terrible sequel to two classic arcade games. But enough about that. Okay, next one. Final Fight 3 for the Super NES. Um, as much as I love the original arcade game, this one is my favorite in the franchise for sure. You had Mike Hagar and Guy as the main characters from the first game, but they were supplemented by new characters Lucia and Dean who are very different. Add to this the Street Fighter style special combos and super combos once you fill the damage meter, and this is what I thought at the time was an instant classic beat-em-up. You know, I have I still fire up my uh, Super Nintendo emulator every so often just to play this because, yeah, it's a lot of fun just to, you know, work your way through it. Okay, next one. King of Dragons. To me, this was the perfect D&D-style beat-em-up until Tower of Doom came out. Uh, you had the three base D&D classes, Fighter, Wizard, and Cleric, each with their own strengths and weaknesses. And then you had the dwarf and elf characters as well. You could see the DNA of the D&D games that would come out three and five years later, respectively, after this game was released. Um, it was always satisfying to see your character level up as you made your way through the game. And yeah, it was. It was a really cool game. I mean, I like it a lot. Okay, moving right along. Next one, Kung Fu Master. This is the granddaddy of the modern-day beat-em-up. I mean, I covered this game in episode 21, and there's not much more positive I could say about it. While I love the games that came after it, there's nothing like finding this machine in the wild and going to town on it. I still have memories of the high store competitions with my friend Mark in the Bull Rama game room in 1985, where we would push each other to higher and higher scores. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was actually listening to, um, oh, what episode was that? 
yeah, it was episode 21, and I was talking about it, and yeah, I talked about that, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> it immediately took me back to 1985, <laughs> you know, I mean, last time I actually played an arcade Kung Fu Master Machine was in Chicago at Galloping Ghost, and the machine didn't work correctly, unfortunately, it was rather disappointing, but to move on, okay, X-Men, now this game was awesome back in the day. I mean, I had just stopped collecting comics when this game came out, but X-Men and everything related to them, like the New Mutants, X-Force, Excalibur, to name a few, were the comics I bought every month. Milford Wreck got this game when it came out in 1992, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun because they got the six-player machine. Uh, of course, anytime I play with other people on this machine, everyone wanted to play Wolverine or Storm. Cyclops was a decent compromise, though Colossus or Dazzler were decent as well. Okay, honorable mentions. Oh, let's see. Violent Storm, uh, the original Double Dragon, Golden Axe, The Punisher, Warriors of Fate, Altered Beast, Bad Dudes vs. Dragon Ninja, which I put on reluctantly, uh, Burning Fight, Captain America and the Avengers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 2, Renegade, Spider-Man, and Black Dragon. Those are my top 10s with honorable mentions. Uh, if you have a beat-em-up that's your favorite and you want to dispute you know, what I just talked about, hey, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. All right, with all of that done, let's move right on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, but I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Okay, are you experienced Street Fighter 2? Yeah, this game. I mean... I have a lot to say about it at the end of this, but I have I do have a lot of information to go through, so I'm just gonna jump right into it, and I'll save my uh, save my commentary for afterwards, like as always. So once again, with uh, thanks to Wikipedia and whoever posted it, here we go. Street Fighter II The World Warrior is a fighting game developed by Capcom and originally released for arcades in 1991. It is the second installment in the Street Fighter series and the sequel to 1987 Street Fighter. It is Capcom's 14th game to use the CP arcade system board. Street Fighter 2 improved on many of the concepts introduced in the first game, including the use of special command-based moves, a combo system, a six-button configuration, and a wider selection of playable characters, each with a unique fighting style. It prominently features a popular two-player mode that obligates direct human-to-human -human competitive play, which prolonged the survival of the declining video game market uh, by stimulating business and driving the fighter genre. It inspired grassroots tournament events culminating into the Evolution Championship series. Street Fighter II shifted the arcade competitive dynamic from achieving personal best high scores to head-to-head -head competition, including large groups. I would dispute that sentence because... When Street Fighter 2 came out and you were good enough to beat it, um, that was the 
next accomplishment was to get as high a score on the machine as you could without using a continue. But I digress. Uh, to continue, Street Fighter 2 became the best-selling game since the golden age of arcade video games, which, of course, 1978 to 1983. Uh, by 1994, it had been played by at least 25 million people in the, in the United States alone. Due to its major success, a series of updated versions was released with additional features and characters. Worldwide, more than 200,000 arcade cabinets and 15 million software units of all versions of Street Fighter Tool have been sold, grossing an estimated $10 billion in total revenue, making it one of the top three highest-grossing video games of all time as of 2017, and the best-selling fighting game until 2019. More than 6.3 Super Nintendo cartridges of Street Fighter 2 have been sold, making it Capcom's best-selling single software game for the next two decades, its best-selling game on a single platform, and the highest-selling third-party game on the Super Nintendo. Street Fighter 2 is regarded as one of the greatest video games of all time and the most important and influential fighting game ever made. I can't disagree with that statement. Uh, its launch is seen as a revolutionary moment within its genre, credited with popularizing the fighting genre during the 1990s and inspiring other producers to create their own fighting series. Yeah, SNK, I'm looking right at you. <laughs> uh, it sparked a renaissance for the arcade video game industry and it impacted competitive video gaming, and wider popular culture, such as films and music. Yeah, it does. Okay, let's do the gameplay real quick. Uh, Street Fighter II follows several conventions and rules established by its 1987 predecessor, Street Fighter. The player engages in opponents in a one-on-one -on -one close quarter combat in a series of best two out of three matches. The objective of each round is to deplete the opponent's vitality before the timer runs out. Both fighters having equal vitality left yields a double KO or a draw game, and additional rounds ensue until sudden death. Uh, in the first Street Fighter II, a match could last up to 10 rounds. Uh, this was reduced to 4 rounds since Champion Edition. If there is no clear winner by the end of the final round, either the computer-controlled opponent will win by default in a single-player single, single match, or both fighters will lose in a two-player match. Every third match in the single-player mode, a bonus stage gives additional points, including a car-breaking stage, a barrel-breaking stage, and a drum-breaking stage. Between the matches, the next match location is selected on a world map. Like in Street Fighter II, the controls are an 8-directional joystick and 6 attack buttons. The, the joystick can jump, crouch, walk left or right, and block. A trade-off of strength and speed are given by 3 punch buttons and 3 kick buttons, each light, medium, and heavy. The player can perform a variety of basic moves in any position, including new grabbing and throwing attacks. The special moves are performed by combinations of directional and button-based commands. Street Fighter II differs from its predecessor due to the selection of multiple player characters, each with the st distinct fighting styles and special moves including combos. According to IGN, quote, the concept of combinations linked attacks that can't be blocked when they're timed correctly came about more or less by accident. Street Fighter II's designers didn't quite mean for it to happen, but the players of the original game eventually found out that certain moves naturally flowed into other ones, end quote. This combo system was later adopted as a standard feature of fighting games and was expanded on in this series. Alright, let's go through the characters. The original Street Fighter II features a roster of eight playable world warriors. 
This includes Ryu and Ken, the main protagonists from Street Fighter, plus six new international newcomers. In the single-player tournament, the player fights the other seven main fighters, then the final opponents, a group of four CPU-only opponents known as the Grand Masters, which includes Sagat from the original Street Fighter. The play playable characters. Uh, Ryu, a Japanese martial artist seeking no fame or even the crown of champion, but only to hone his Shotokan karate skills with the inner power of Chi. He dedicates his life to perfect his own potential while abandoning everything else in life, such as having no family and few friends. His only bond is with Ken Masters. He is the winner of the previous tournament. He is not convinced that he is the greatest fighter in the world and comes to this tournament in search of fresh competition. E. Honda, a sumo wrestler from Japan. He aims to improve the negative reputation of sumo wrestling by proving competitors to be legitimate athletes. Blanca, a beast-like mutant from Brazil who was raised in the jungle. He enters the tournament to uncover more origins about his forgotten past. Yeah, and that story is rather touching, I have to say. Guile, a former United States Air Force Special Forces operative seeking to defeat M. Bison who killed his best friend Charlie. Ken, uh, Ryu's best friend, greatest rival, and former training partner from the United States. Ryu's personal challenge rekindled Ken's fighting spirit and persuaded him to enter the World Warrior Tournament, as well as feeling lackadaisical in his fighting potential due to spending too much time with his fiance. <laughs> Chun Li, a Chinese martial artist who works as an Interpol officer. Much like Guile, she, she does not enter the World Warrior Tournament for any personal glory except proving that she can defeat any man who challenges her. Chun Li's ambition in the past was tracking down the movements of the smuggling operation known as Shadow Law. Her goal now is her trail being led to the tournament by seeking to avenge her deceased father by holding the Grand Master's leader of the crime syndicate responsible. Zangief a professional wrestler and sambo fighter from the Soviet Union. He aims to prove Soviet strength is the strongest form of strength. Jeez, there's a, there's a term for you. Particularly by defeating American opponents with his bare hands. Dalsim, a fire-breathing yoga master from India. Even though he is a pacifist, he uses the money earned from fighting in order to lift people out of poverty. The CPU exclusive characters in order of appearance. Balrog, an American boxer with a similar appearance to Mike Tyson. Called M. Bison in Japan, one of, once one of the world's greatest heavyweight boxers, he began to work for Shadow Law for easy money. Vega, a Spanish bullfighter who wields a claw and uses a unique style of ninjutsu. Called Balrog in Japan. Uh, he is vain and wishes to eliminate ugly people from the world. I can never read that sentence without laughing a little bit. Sagat, my man. Um, Muay Thai kickboxer and former World Warrior champion from the original Street Fighter. He was once known as the King of Street Fighters until he got demoted to the King of Muay Thai in his own tournament due to the narrow defeat at the hands of Ryu's uh, show Ryuken, which left a deep gash across his chest. Ever since that moment, he felt disgrace and will do anything to have a grudge match with Ryu to get his title back, even if it takes joining forces with Shadow Law. M. Bison, the leader of the criminal organization Shadow Law. Or, which is also uh, called Shadowloo. <laughs> Either way, we know what it is. Uh, who uses a mysterious power known as Psycho Power and the final opponent of the game, called Vega in Japan. Takayuki Nakayama stated in an interview that many character designs were trialed and dropped along the development process. Rejected character designs for Street Fighter II included a bullfighter and an American amateur wrestler. Okay, uh, regional differences. 
uh, with the exception of Sagat, the Shadowloo bosses have different names in the Japanese version. The African-American boxer known as Balrog in the international versions was a, designed as a pastiche of real-life boxer Mike Tyson and was originally named M. Bison. Uh, Vega and M. Bison were originally named Balrog and Vega, respectively. Uh, when Street Fighter II was localized for the overseas market, the name of the bosses were rotated out of concern that the boxer's similarities to Tyson could have led to a likeness infringement lawsuit. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely could have, because their, their artistic representation is very, very close to what Mike Tyson was at the time, for real. Uh, this name change was carried over to future games in the series. To avoid confusion in tournament play, many players refer to each character by a, a defining characteristic. The names are Claw, known to refer to the character from Spain, Boxer to refer to the African-American Boxer, and Dictator to refer to the final boss. The characters in the Japanese version have more than one win quote, and if the player loses a match against the CPU in the Japanese version, a random playing tip will be shown at the bottom of the continue screen. While the ending text for the characters was originally translated literally, a few changes were made to creative differences from Capcom US's marketing staff. Uh, for example, the name of Gal's fallen friend who later debuted as a playable fighter in Street Fighter Alpha was changed from Nash to Charlie since a... Staff member from Capcom USA said that Nash is not a natural-sounding English name. Interesting. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> you know, I thought it was interesting at the time. I didn't know about this, but, you know, considering you had a boxer that looked like Mike Tyson, but the name was switched, you know, with the uh, end boss. So, eh, whatever. Okay, the development. Although the original punching pad cabinet of Street Fighter had not been very popular, that's an understatement, uh, the alternate six-button version was more successful, which began to generate an interest in a sequel. Capcom began to make fighting games a priority after Final Fight was commercially successful in the United States. Yoshiki Okamoto recounted, quote, The basic idea at Capcom was to revive Street Fighter, a good game concept, and to make it a better-playing arcade game, end quote. <laughs> laudable goal and boy did they succeed <laughs> beyond their wildest dreams i think uh development for street fighter took about two years and took about four, 35 to 40 people with noritaka funamizu as a producer akira nishitani and akira yasuda in charge of the game and character design respectively the budget was estimated at uh two million four hundred fifty thousand dollars which is four million eight hundred seventy thousand in 2021 money Funimitsu notes uh, that the developers did not particularly prioritize Street Fighter 2's balance. Yeah, that's for sure. He primarily ascribes the game's success to its appealing animation patterns. The quality of animation benefited from the developers' use of the CPS-1 hardware, with advantages including allowing different characters to occupy different amounts of memory. For example, Ryu can occupy 8-M-bit and Zangief 12-M-bit. The combo system came about by accident. Quote, while I was making a bug check during the car bonus stage, I noticed something strange and curious. I taped the sequence and we saw that during the punch timing, it was possible to add a second hit and so on. I thought this was something impossible to make useful inside a game as the timing balance was so hard to catch. So we decided to leave the feature as a hidden one. The most interesting thing is that this became the base for future titles. Later, we were able to make the timing more comfortable and the combo into a real feature. 
In Street Fighter 2, we thought that if you got perfect timing, you could play several hits, up to four, I think. Then we managed to place eight. A bug? Maybe. And that was a quote from Nortaka Funimitsu. Uh, the majority of in-game music was composed by Yoko Shimomura. This is ultimately the only game in the series on which Shimomura worked as she left the company for Square two years later. Isao Abe, a Capcom newcomer, handled a few additional tracks. Uh, the Versus screen, Sagat's theme, which is a banger, by the way. And here comes a new challenger. Uh for Street Fighter 2 and became the main composer on subsequent versions. The sound programming and sound effects were overseen by Yoshihiro Sakaguchi, the composer on Street Fighter. Location testing began in Japan. It was then exhibited in the United Kingdom at London's Amusement Trades Exhibition International in January of 1991. The same month, Capcom held a two-week location test in North America before unveiling the game at Capcom's distributor, conference on February 1st, 1991, held at Marriott Harbor Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Capcom introduced Street Fighter 2 as, quote, its greatest video game ever, and they were certainly right about that. Okay, there's a list of all the ports. Uh, let's see, they did a ports for the Super Nintendo, Amiga, Atari ST, Commodore 64, Amstrad P CPC, ZX Spectrum, the PC... Game Boy, Sega Master System, Sega Saturn, Sony PlayStation, uh, mobile phones, PlayStation 2, Xbox, PlayStation Portable, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, and Windows. And that goes all the way from 1992 to 2018. Okay, let's go on to the updates. Street Fighter 2 spawned a series of revisions, each refining the play mechanics, graphics, character roster, and other aspects of the game. The first update, Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition, was released in arcades in March 1992. It rebalances character power levels, allows both players in two-player matches to select the same character, distinguished by alternate costume colors, and allows players to choose the four previous computer-only boss characters. Following the release of Champion Edition, a wave of unauthorized modifications for arcade cabinets, such as the so-called Rainbow Edition, appeared, prompting Capcom's official response with Street Fighter II Turbo in December, increasing the playing speed and giving some characters new special moves. Street, Super Street Fighter II The New Challengers was released in September 1993 using the more advanced CP System 2, allowing for updated graphics and audio and introducing four new characters, but re relieving the speed increase of Street Fighter II Turbo, which led to it uh, being quickly superseded by Super Street Fighter II Turbo, released in February 1994, which allows for a selective game speed and introduced power-up special moves called Super Combos and adds a new hidden character. All arcade Street Fighter 2 games have been ported to various platforms as individual releases and in compilations. Later home versions further revise or expand the game, including Hyper Street Fighter 2, which was later given an arcade release, and Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo HD Remix. Alter Street Fighter 2 The Final Challengers was released they were released for the Nintendo Switch and adds two and later three characters who previously debuted outside Street Fighter 2 updates. In addition to official updated versions, numerous counterfeited modified versions of Street Fighter were in wide circulation. For example, nine different counterfeit versions were available for Super Famicom in Japan by December 1992. Interesting. Alright, the reception. 
Okay, by 1994, Street Fighter II had been played by at least 25 million people in the United States alone across arcades and homes. All versions of Street Fighter II are estimated to have grossed a total of $10.61 billion in revenue, mostly from the arcade market. As of 2017, it was it is one of the top three highest grossing video games of all time, along with Space Invaders in 78 and Pac-Man in 1980. Uh, the arcade versions. Uh, Street Fighter 2 was not immediately successful in Japan as most arcade players were initially playing it solo rather than multiplayer as originally intended. Yoshiki Okamoto was disappointed with its initial performance and was told he should have produced another solo beat-em-up like Final Fight instead. After a Japanese arcade magazine, Gamus began publishing articles informing readers about the battle play feature, the game began gaining considerable popularity in Japanese arcades. In Japan, Game Machine listed the game on their April 1991 issue as being the second most successful table arcade cabinet of the month, outperforming games such as Daytona, Twin B, and King of the Monsters. Before Street Fighter II topped the charts two weeks later, uh, it went on to become the highest grossing arcade game of 1991 in Japan, and then it again became the highest grossing arcade game of 1992. Street Fighter II Turbo became the highest grossing arcade game of 1993 with Street Fighter 2 Dash which is a uh, champion edition in Japan at number 4 and the World Warrior at number 9 Street Fighter 2 was similarly successful in the western world in the United States the game was more immediately successful as it exceeded expectations in test markets with individual machines earning $1,300 to $1,400 a week Capcom USA sales representative Jeff Walker predicted it would, quote, become the kit of 1991, end quote, and Replay Magazine said that the game showed that there was, quote, plenty of life, unquote, left in the then-struggling arcade business. By March, it had, it had become a blockbuster, and the top-grossing game in the United States, giving a substantial boost in earnings for street operators. It topped the Replay Arcade software charts from May 1991 through August 1992 for a total of 16 months. On the PlayMeter Arcade charts, it was the top-grossing video game during January to February 1992, and then again in May of 1992. Street Fighter 2 was the highest grossing arcade game of 1991 in the United States and one of the top five highest grossing arcade conversion kits of 1992, which was Champion Edition. Uh, its success was considered phenomenal. By 1992, it had turned around the convenience store segment of the coin-op industry and had become the best-selling arcade game in 10 years. Electronic Game noted in its October 1992 issue, quote, not since the early 1980s has an arcade game received so much attention and all-out fanatical popularity, end quote. It was similarly successful in Australia, where it was performing strongly after 16 months on the market, with Leisure Line magazine noting in 1992 that not, quote, since the days of Space Invaders has a game had such longevity, end quote. In 1991, 50,000 arcade units were sold worldwide, including 17,000 units in Japan, with Capcom reporting continued production of arcade unit, units due to repeat orders. In the United Kingdom, your Commodore reported in July 1991 that spectators were betting on players at London West End arcades. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny to me, but it is. Uh, between early 1991 and early 1993, Street Fighter II had captured 60% 
of the global coin op market, including 10,000 units installed in the United Kingdom by mid-1991 mid with individual machines in the UK estimated to be taking between, I think it's 700 instead of 70, but 700 to 1,000 pounds sterling per week over the next two years. Street Fighter II generated an estimated annual revenue of 260 million pounds in the UK alone for the two years between mid-1991 and mid-1993, totaling 520 million pounds sterling, uh, which is which was $913 million at the time, equivalent to $1.76 billion in 2021 money. Uh, the company sold more than 60,000 arcade machines of the original Street Fighter II, including about 20 to 25,000 units in the United States. It was followed by Street Fighter II Champion Edition, of which 140,000 arcade units were sold in Japan alone, where it cost 160,000 yen, which was about $1,300 for each unit, amounting to 22.4 billion yen, which is about $182 million in revenue generated from hardware sales in Japan. Uh, let's see, in addition to about 20 to 25,000 units sold in the United States. Wow. On the U.S. Replay Arcade Charts for t July of 92, Champion Edition was number one on the Upright Cabinets chart above Midway's Mortal Kombat, while the original Street Fighter II was number two on the Cornup Software chart below SNK's World Heroes. That's shocking to me. Wow. Uh, Street Fighter II generated $1.5 billion, $2.9 billion in 2021 money. Uh, annually in 1993, making it the year's highest-grossing entertainment product above the film Jurassic Park. And we all know how much of a blockbuster Jurassic Park was. <laughs> uh, let's see. In January 94, Capcom referred to Street Fighter II as, quote, the most successful video game series of the decade while promoting Super Street Fighter II. In early 94, Capcom projected sales of Super Street Fighter II to reach 100,000 arcade units. According to March 1995 issue of Game Fan Magazine, the game had, quote, earned billions of dollars in profit, end quote. And they break it down with a uh, little chart here. Uh, like it said, the hardware sales for Worldwide were 60,000 plus, and uh, basically it... Yeah, it's showing the yeah the sales in uh, the United Kingdom, which will like it says nineteen nine hundred thirteen million in nineteen ninety three money. Uh, let's see, Champion Edition got had one hundred forty thousand units in Japan, twenty thousand plus in the U.S. As of nineteen ninety five money, that was two point three one two billion dollars, and you add all that up, and the sale you know all the sales with the arcade convergent units and so forth. Uh, the toll is $5.31 billion, uh, not adjusted for inflation. It's well over $10.5 if adjusted for inflation. And the peak chart positions for all these games, Street Fighter II, Champion Edition, Turbo, Super Street Fighter II, and Super Turbo, all at some point were number one on the charts. Wow. In addition to Capcom's official arcade units, many pirated counterfeit Street Fighter II arcade clone units were sold across the world. Replay noted in January of 93 that Street Fighter II had, quote, single-handedly reignited the worldwide black market in counterfeit PCBs and speed-up kits, end quote. Many counterfeit arcade units often outsold official Street Fighter II arcade cabinets in various markets. For example, about 200,000 counterfeits were in Mexico alone, where Capcom did not officially sell the game.
Bondiel from Hong Kong produced 3,000 ar copied arcade units per month for markets such as Latin America, and a Taiwanese firm produced 20,000 copy copied arcade units in 1991. In Taiwan, up to 150,000 clone units were manufactured by 1992. Many counterfeit units were in South Korea, such as a trader selling about 100 Street Fighter II PCBs by 1992. Seven different versions of the game claimed to be sequels in 1992, mostly from Hong Kong, and one named Champion of Champion Editions reported was in British arcades. Capcom and its partners took legal action against counterfeit arcade units in regions such as Southeast Asia, North America, South Korea, and Puerto Rico. Okay. Uh, let's see, we'll do the home conversions, and I think we'll stop there. Okay, the numerous home conversions of Street Fighter II are listed among Capcom's Platinum Class games with, with more than 1 million units sold worldwide. In Japan, 1 million copies of the Super Famicom version were sold in June of 1992, within the first two weeks of its release, at a retail price of 10,780 yen, which was uh, 85 back then or $164 in 2021 money. Uh, in February of 1992, Gamus Magazine in Japan said that due to low stock, the console versions were s selling for much higher uh, at 15,000 yen, equivalent to $119 or $230 in 2021 money. Uh, it topped the Japanese Famitsu sales charts from June through July to August 1992. It was a multi-million seller in Japan by December 1992. In the United States, 750,000 units of the SNES version were sold between July 15th and September 30th of 1992 with a retail price of $74.99. Uh, let's see, according to uh, EGM, quote, never has a game taken the country by storm as, as this one has, end quote. It remained America's top-selling Super NES game for much of late 1992, in August and October, November and December. Uh, in 1992 in North America, 2 million units were sold. In the United Kingdom, Street Fighter II replaced Super Mario World as the bundled game for the SNES, and the SNES and Amiga version make it the second best-selling home video game of 1992 below Sonic the Hedgehog 2 for the Mega Drive. Worldwide, 4 million Street Fighter II cartridges have been sold by September of 1992, 5 million by the end of 92, and over 6 million by 1993. The SNES version became the company's best-selling single consumer game software at more than 6.3 million units, and it remains its best-selling game software on a single platform. By 1993, 10 million units on all home software versions had been sold, and 11.9 million units for Nintendo and Sega consoles by March of 1994. The SNES version of Street Fighter II Turbo and Super Street Fighter II had 4.1 and 2 million unit sales respectively, followed by the Mega Drive Genesis version, which is Street Fighter II Special Champion Edition with 1.65 million in sales. In total, more than 14 million copies were sold for the SNES and Mega Drive Genesis consoles. Uh, the SNES version of Street Fighter II was Capcom's best-selling single game unit until 2013, when it was surpassed by Resident Evil 5. Uh, the Amiga version was successful in the United Kingdom, where it became the best-selling home computer software of 1992, though only being available for the last 16 days of the year. That should tell you something right there. Uh, let's see, Street Fighter II also topped the UK's Amiga sales chart in January of 93. 
and also the UK Atari ST chart in March of 93. In 2008, Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo HD Remix broke both the first day and first week sales records for a download-only game. Street Fighter 2 was the best-selling game with 15.5 million units sold across all versions and platforms until it was surpassed by Super Smash Bros. Ultimate in 2019. <laughs> yeah, that's a record to have for sure. And there's another chart that breaks that all down. Uh, 6.3 uh, million sold worldwide of Street Fighter 2. Special Champ was 1.66 million. Uh, Street Fighter 2 Turbo was 4.1. Super Street Fighter 2 was 2 million. And, it, and then uh, Street Fighter 2 for the Game Boy. Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo for the Game Boy Advance. Hyper Street Fighter 2 for the PlayStation. I think I have that, actually. Uh, Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo HD Remix for the PS3 and the Xbox 360. And Ultra Street Fighter 2 for the Nintendo Switch. All those sales added up together. Yeah, over 15.5 million copies sold worldwide. That's crazy. We're going to do the impact real, real quick, and then we're going to leave it. Then we're going to stop there. I forgot about that. Sorry, folks. Uh, Street Fighter 2 is regarded as one of the most influential video games of all time and the most important fighting game in particular. The release of Street Fighter 2 in 1991 is often considered a revolutionary moment in the fighting game genre. I would say evolutionary, actually, considering how crappy the first game was. Um, it has the most accurate joystick and button scanning routine in the genre, allowing players to reliably execute multi-button special moves, and its graphics use Capcom's CPS arcade chipset with highly detailed characters and stages. Whereas previous games allow players to combat a variety of computer-controlled fighters, Street Fighter 2 allows human combat. The popularity of Street Fighter 2 surprised the gaming industry as arcade owners bought more machines to keep up with the demand. Uh, it was responsible for introducing the combo mechanic, which came about when skilled players learned that they could combine several attacks with no time for the opponent to recover. Its success inspired a wave of other fighting games, which were initially often labeled as clones or imitators. Uh, including titles such as Guardians of the Hood, Art of Fighting, Time Killers, Mortal Kombat, and Killer Instinct. Street Fighter II also influenced the development of the combat mechanics of the beat-em-up genre game Streets of Rage 2. However, Street Fighter II also received criticism for its depiction of street violence and for having inspired numerous other violent games in the industry. Yes, so what? <laughs> a game is a game. <laughs> but, well, let's continue. I'm almost finished. Uh, Street Fighter 2 was the best-selling arcade video game by far since the golden age of arcade video games, bringing an arcade renaissance in the early 1990s. Its impact on home video games was equally important, becoming a long-lasting system seller for the Super Nintendo. Since then, up until the late 1990s, numerous best-selling home video games were arcade ports. In 2005, EGM ranked it the ninth most important game since they began the publication in 1989, stating that no game, quote, did more to prop up arcades, end quote, in the 1990s, and it was the first killer app for the SNES. Yeah, I agree with that, for real. When I remember when Street Fighter 2 came out for the SNES because that was right when I was working uh, at the Nintendo kiosk and when that came out, yeah, everybody wanted to either play it or buy it. The game popularized the concept of face-to-face -to -face tournament level competition between two players instead of just high scores. 
This enabled the competitive multiplayer and deathmatch modes found in modern action games. John Romero, for example, cited the competitive multiplayer of Street Fighter II as an influence on the deathmatch mode for a seminal first-person shooter, Doom. See? <laughs> it is an innovation in revision series, with Capcom continuously upgrading and expanding the arcade game instead of releasing a sequel. This furthered the practice of patches and downloadable content found in modern video games. They talk about its influence in popular culture, especially in hip-hop. And, well, we'll just leave it at that. Okay, with all that said and done... Let's go into my experiences with it. Okay. The few arcades that were left under, underwent a fundamental shift when this game came out in 1991. I remember that all of the Dutch's fast food restaurants in the area had gotten the machines as well as Crazy 8's Arcade, but what blew me away was when I went to New Jersey for an online get-together, and I went to an arcade in Wildwood that had like five or six machines. That was a serious arcade. Yeah, who was... A standalone building, several thousand square feet, you know, wall-to-wall arcade games, and yeah, in the middle of the floor, they had a line of Street Fighter II machines. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that. Uh, but everywhere I went, that there was a Street Fighter machine, people were playing it. The action strategy and varied characters made for a great experience, and it was one of the few games I didn't honestly mind spending 50 cents on. Uh, I was a Chun-Li disciple from the start. Uh, her agility and attacks made her the perfect character for me to play, although I tried all eight of them at first. Uh, my roommate was a Blanca player through and through, and she was awesome at the game. We bonded over a few games in the Melbourne Mall Arcade in the summer of 1993, which started the next phase of my life in earnest. The game requires excellent timing, knowledge of spacing and mixing up of attacks, and a thorough knowledge of the character you're fighting with. The game was also notorious for ramping up in difficulty and cheesiness fast after the first bonus stage, which required you to change up your tactics because what worked in the first three fights would not work so well now. The boss fights were tough yet rewarding once you knew how to beat them, and beating Bison at the end felt like a massive accomplishment, and at least in the early days of the game, it was. Um, but even though you could beat the game, it was never guaranteed that you could do so even the next time you played. There was something programmed into that game that would significantly increase the difficulty of your next opponents if you were doing too well. Even so, this was a leap in what was possible in arcades in 1991, and the game deserves its place in history. And that's the uh, breakdown for Street Fighter. Uh, but we are immediately going to go and pivot into Time vs. Tragedy. versus strategy all right now i'm not going to go into a detailed breakdown of each character and the combos because there is no shortage of gaming websites online that have that information you know that you can access you know quickly but i will give an overview of the characters chun li and blanca are the fastest characters dalsim and zangief are the slowest with ryu and ken ryu ken and uh 
Guile are pretty much in the middle, and Honda is ranging towards the slow end, though he can move, not move, but he can attack quickly as well. Uh, Zangief can inflict heavy amounts of damage with his pro wrestling moves as well as his jumping spinning pile driver. Chun-Li mostly relies on her speed to inflict damage through combos as well as her wind kick and spinning bird kick. Ryu and Ken can shoot Hadouken fireballs as well as using the dragon punch and hurricane kick. Dalsim can spit fireballs and flame as well as extending his limbs to attack from distance. Blanca hurls himself at his opponents with his beast roll and can inflict his damage also with his electrical field. Honda can inflict major damage with his sumo wrestling moves along with his hundred hand slap and sumo headbutt. Guile has his sonic boom projectile attack and his flash kick. I'm fully aware that the majority of listeners have played Street Fighter 2 and more than a few have mastered it. What I'm going to say as far as strategy goes is to learn the character you pick inside and out. Learn combos and be able to execute them at a moment's notice. Learn how to defend attacks properly and to counter out of your defense. Learn the anti-air technique, meaning knowing how to hit your opponent when they take to the air to attack you without taking damage yourself, or or at the very least do uh, a damage trade. Um, once you've learned these techniques, then you can start going for perfect rounds, and that means to defeat your opponent without taking any damage at all. They give you significant bonus to your your point score, 30,000 for the regular fighters, 50,000 for the three bosses, and 80,000 points for Bison at the end. Above all, be prepared to be frustrated. A lot. This game can be very unforgiving at times, even for experts of the game, and things occur during the game that you feel shouldn't be happening at all. Above all, a win is a win, whether you have a full health meter or the slightest sliver left. Anything that keeps your game going is fine. Uh, This is one of the top three earning video games of all time for a reason. And that's time for some strategy. (laughs) Go, you know, if you want combos and all that other stuff, there are no shortage of video game websites that have all that stuff in spades. So, you know, you know, Google a little bit or, you know, go to the usual suspects like uh, GameSpy or uh, uh, websites like that. You'll All that information is there. And that's Street Fighter with the Are You Experienced and Time for Some Strategy Treatment. Okay, now I know there are people out there who've played Street Fighter. So if you, you know, have your own experiences with the game, um, you know, tell me about it, you know games that you've played that were like the best games you played in your life things of that nature um your feelings about you know how the game played or you know you know what you thought of it hey tell me about it arcadeaddictbryant at gmail.com okay and now we're going on the road this uh recording i did february 20th of 2021 and I can't remember for the life of me what I talked about. Probably another stream of consciousness thing. So, you know what? Let's just get in the car and take a drive and we'll find out what I said. So, see you guys later. Brian here, and I am on the road. 
I'm in my brand new used Chevy Equinox. I mean, she's 10 years old and has 100,000 miles on her, but so far so good. It's been two weeks since I've taken delivery uh, of the car, and aside from needing to replace the driver's side uh, window motor, everything's working pretty much just fine. I mean, I do have plans for this car. I'm going to replace the uh, stereo, which is a 10-year-old stereo. I'm going to replace it with something a little more modern that has, you know, Bluetooth connectivity, true Bluetooth connectivity, I should say, because I can use Bluetooth with this uh, vehicle for my phone calls, but I can't play music through the Bluetooth, unfortunately. Uh, I think that was maybe about one, maybe even two model years before they updated the Bluetooth to be able to play music. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to get the window motor replaced because, yeah, it definitely needs that. I mean, especially in cold weather. I mean, when I had my Toyota Matrix, um, probably I'd say about halfway through the years that I owned her and I was driving her, she was a 2003, I bought her in 2004, um, and I drove her right up until, what, 2018, I think? I think it was, yeah, it was 2018 when I found out when I went to get the tires, get her tires replaced, that the her subframe was rotted out, and getting a replacement subframe used was almost impossible, and getting a brand new one was um, financially not possible, so she basically sat for the better part of two years before someone came around and bought her, you know, for about $300, and at that point, I wanted a 1000 or 700 was like the lowest I could go, but my, I was in a real financial crisis then, so I had to take that money in order to make sure that my, uh, you know, make sure there was food on the table, more or less. Um, but yeah, so with my old car, I had her radio replaced, oh goodness, I want to say 2015, I think, maybe 2016, because the radio, the stock radio finally just gave up the ghost, and I should have paid the extra 20 or $25 to have a Bluetooth adapter put in it. But, you know, live and learn. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to do with this car. I'm going to upgrade her radio. Um, the, st the speakers seem to be fine. So I'm going to stick with those, stick with the stock speakers. I mean, it's a quote-unquote premium sound system to begin with. It was, it's a Pioneer uh, sound system. And just playing the... 
uh, playing music through the auxiliary cable is decent enough, but it's not as good as playing it through Bluetooth, not now. Um, so, yeah, so that's the term, the plans I have. Um, I mean, aside from just making sure to keep the oil changed on time, you know, and, you know, doing, you know, general maintenance and things like that, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, hopefully I can keep, keep Charlotte here running well for about three years or so, because if I have anything to say about it, it's going to take me that long to pay her off. Um, from there, we'll see, as always. So yeah, um, now I'm on uh, US 23 northbound, heading up towards the Brighton area and going to the arcade. Um, in a ironic twist of fate, I won't go so far as to say it's cruel, but the second stop on the uh, route that I have for my new job um, is on the east side of Brighton, maybe about half a mile down the street from the arcade. And the funny part is, is that I really was looking, I want to go there, but usually, even if I leave on time from, uh, from the hospital and I get up here, because one of the, the stop that's closest to the arcade doesn't, I'm not supposed to, um, I'm not supposed to actually get, uh, the, uh, lab samples until seven o'clock. The earliest I can get up here is like 6.30, 6.35. So there's no point in going to the arcade unless I just want to look longingly through the windows. <laughs> and be like, oh, I wish I had time to play, but, you know, you know, such is life. Um, let's see, what else? Yeah, this will be my first trip to the arcade since I think about, um, what? October, I think. I think October is the last time I went. And it's either October or, no, actually, I think it was either November or December. That was the last time I went. And, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, the state is more or less open with uh, capacity restrictions, of course. You know, until the virus burns itself out and or a, the critical mass of people getting um, vaccinated is achieved this is how it's going to be. It's probably going to be probably another year before we start going back towards what was normal in 2019 before this, all this mess started. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to that as, as is probably 99% of the populace. Um, just being able just to go any, you know, go to a movie or go out to eat at a restaurant and actually sit down and eat. Like I said in the beginning of this, we took a lot of this stuff for granted, you know. And of course, you've got those people out there who seem to think that 
that, that this pandemic is either an excuse for our government to curtail our freedoms, which is stupid, or which is even more stupid, that the virus itself was a creation of our own government to quote-unquote thin the herd, you know, and my whole thing is, is that if you're doing what has been suggested that you do, which is wear a mask, stay six feet away from people, and that kind of stuff, and if you don't have to go anywhere, you know, if it's not like a necessity, like going to work or going out to buy groceries and staying home, we wouldn't be in this position if we, if, if number one, our former president treated the pandemic seriously, even if he tr- create, treated it with a modicum of seriousness, we wouldn't have, you know, over 400,000 dead, close to 500,000. We wouldn't have that. And I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Because from the start, you know, our former president was like, this is nothing. We're going to, you know, we're just going to go and beat this. And we're just going to um, get back to normal within the space of a few months. Well, a few months turned into six months, turned into a year. And by that time, yeah, he got voted out of office. And I've said this before. If he wanted to be reelected, and God only knows, considering everything that's happened ever since the election, he wanted to be reelected, all he had to do was treat this pandemic seriously. But he was a person who... didn't look kindly, and I'm being very, very, very moderate with my words, didn't look very kindly to people who knew more than him and that were smarter than him. And that's just the truth of it. You know, I am more of a moderate in, you know, moderate leaning towards the left than I am uh, a crying heart liberal because I'm not. Because at a certain point, you have to make sure that you're doing, if you are president, a president, a governor, a senator, a congressman, uh, a representative, whatever you are, you have to be doing your level best for the people who put you in office. Now, I will go so far as to say that that's exactly what our former president did, but what he actually did was he did everything to separate us as a nation and unfortunately on several levels it worked and it worked well because that was that's how that's how those people keep think keep things in their favor divide and conquer you know it's a classic strategy and it works just as well politically as it does militarily. But anyway, enough about politics. Because just sitting back and just seeing, just seeing it, you know, it, this was this was a big, this is a big step back for our country. Even though there are 
about 40, 40 to 44% of our populace who seem to think that this was the way to keep America on top. No, it's not. <laughs> and I will leave it at that. But anyway, so now I'm getting up into Whitmore Lake, uh, um, just about to cross over the six mile road exit on US 23, um, heading up to Brighton. Uh, Brighton is just north of Whitmore Lake, so I'm about mm, about 10 minutes out or so. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to, you know, letting my inner 12-year-old run around a little bit, because God only knows over the last month or so, you know, I haven't had a chance to do that. With let's see, the holidays and, you know, the tense situation at my former job, that was part of it. Um, not quite having the time and or the, the money to go. And then the sporadic hours of operation that they, that the arcade had. And that's not really not, that's not really their fault, you know, because I think our governor tried to keep a moderate approach about this, but things just turned out bad. And, you know, there was, a, I mean, there was like this huge ups, ups, uptick of cases in like Grand Rapids and Detroit and uh, Lansing. Ann Arbor was kind of spared because I think the majority of people who live in Ann Arbor listen to what she was saying to listen to what she was saying to them so Ann Arbor wasn't quite as badly affected as Detroit and Grand Rapids was or Lansing so you know so you know the arcade was open for a little bit then they had to shut down because uh, things got really bad in the state of Michigan and then they got reopened again, I think in what, October? Because I think I went like two weeks after um, they reopened their doors. Um, let's see, what else? Um, I mean, it's not so much a sad thing, but, you know, they have, you know, in order to sort of keep things afloat and to keep their businesses, keep their business open, they've had to um, re-up the prices, you know, for admission, which is, you know, which, which is a shame, but it's understandable. Small businesses have taken it right on the chin over the last year, over the last, what, 13 months, 14 months. You know, they, you know, no, I take that back. Um, 11 months because things didn't really start getting serious here until March, but yeah, businesses took it right on the chin small businesses, you know, not the mega corporations out there who took their federal assistance money when they didn't need it, and they only did what was right with that money, either by giving it back or uh, truly distributing it out to their employees who are forced to stay home uh, unless they got called out in social media. I mean, that happened with, with a couple of big corporations. 
you know? And it's like, oh, what? It's like, unless you are seriously hurting, you know, personally, it's like, pay your people. Let them be, be able to pay their bills through through this rough time. I mean, you know, God only knows how many people have had to, um, have had to, uh, go out and find other jobs because, you know, their main job, their main source of income is shut down and ha- and was shut down for at the very least six months, you know, and, you know, government assistance is what it is. It's not enough. Uh, the stimulus that was offered wasn't enough. $600 a month is nothing. Only $600 a month is a lot only if you are dirt freaking poor. And, you know, I'm maybe about a half step above dirt freaking poor. I can pay my bills. I can keep the lights on. I can pay the rent. I can, you know, keep food on the table. But I've really got to watch almost every dollar that goes out. And that's the reason why I can't go to the arcade Brighton as much as I want to. That's why I can't go out to uh, the other places in the greater Detroit area that I want to do for Arcade Rundown and Arcade Review. So, you know, it's just one of those kind of things. $600 a month, yes, that helps out a lot. Considering, you know, I worked straight through the pandemic. I was essential personnel the entire time. Even though I had to work part-time hours uh, for almost three months. You know, only when COVID testing really took a a serious upswing uh, with um, urgent care clinics and standalone uh, medical facilities and the volume of people that were coming in was so high that, you know, um, my boss came to me and said uh, one day in like, what, late May, early June, he said, you're going back on full time because I'm going to have you go to these places to pick up COVID testing because that's what we're going to do. And that was fine. You know, the three months that I was part-time hours, and by the way, I didn't get my unemployment benefits, and that reminds me, I need to call my representative and say, hey, I called you guys back in November, um, and I haven't heard anything about getting my back unemployment, because not only is the know, the actual wages that I lost, but also that I think it's either weekly or bi-weekly, the, uh, the, uh, income assistance, which was like $600 is either, I think it was $600 a week. It might've been $600 a month, but I think it was a 600 a week or not 600 a month, 600 every two weeks. Um, and that, that assistance would have kept me right on an even keel throughout those three months. And, you know, it's just, and I've had to file and refile my unemployment and I would, I would leave messages and notes and all this other stuff. And I understand that the, 
um, the unemployment agency is basically buried under a mountain of applicants and issues and problems. I get that. I totally understand that. You know, which is why I'm not making a huge deal out of it right now. But one of my uh, one of my managers came to me and said, "Hey, call your representative. You know, tell them, hey, I haven't got you know, I haven't got my unemployment. Can you help?" And things like that. It's doing things like that is how you get reelected in office. But I'm leaving politics alone, <laughs> or at least I'm trying to. Unfortunately, the entire pandemic on one level or another has been severely politicized, unfortunately, you know, and I can't help but think that the other countries around the world are just laughing at us, at our ignorance, you know, and our arrogance, because, yeah, we have been ignorant and arrogant about this pandemic. We have, you know. And we could have been, we could have gotten so much further and done so much better, and we didn't, and we should have. We're supposed to be a leader in this world. Other countries are supposed to look to us, you know, and see our example and say, hey, let's do it how the United States is doing it, because they're actually doing it the right way. They're doing things in, in a way that is doing the best for their people. Let's do that. But unfortunately, no, we, we failed on a lot of levels, a lot of levels. But anyway, getting back to my point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I got through the pandemic okay. It wasn't too horrible. It wasn't too bad. I mean, yeah, there were some stressful moments. There were some stressful times, to be sure. You know, I'd be lying to say I got through this without, you know, being upset or, you know, stressed out over paying bills and food. And, you know, thank God for the, um, you know, Washtenaw County education because they have been supplying us with food for the last what, seven, eight, nine months, somewhere in there, Um, maybe even as many as 10, to the point where I have to actually give food away because I, we can't, we can't store it all, (laughs) it's really crazy, all right, hang on a second, I gotta get some money out of the ATM, so I'm gonna pause this, okay, I'm back, as I have to roll my driver's side window up a little bit of time to the point where I actually have to reach over and actually grab the glass and pull up on it to assist the motor (laughs) to get the window back up oh yeah as soon as I get as soon as I get either my taxes or my stimulus yes I'm getting that I am getting that replaced for sure with the quickness because that's going to be annoying and it's not going to be all that much better when the weather warms up either so yeah it's just one of those things that just breaks down after a while it's one of those things just has to be replaced and I went on Rock Auto about what a couple of days ago just to price to see how much a replacement motor with the window guides is and it's like on average like 80 bucks I think I can afford it 
especially if I, if we get the stimulus that we're supposed to get. Um, let's see what else. So yeah, this, this, um, on the road segment is going to be, uh, a two parter. Um, I decided that if I'm going to do on the road and do arcade run reports and stuff like that, like I've been doing that, you know, I probably should do like a sort of like a before and after kind of thing where it's before I get to the arcade and then after being on my way home. That's, I think, what I'm going to end up doing from now on. I just have to remember to do it. Uh, So now I am now on Grand River Avenue after going to my bank and going to the ATM and getting out 20 bucks for admission. Um, Let's see, I'll probably start the second half of this segment uh, after I get something to eat because I'm, I know I'm going to work up an appetite because I almost always do going to the arcade. Um, I'm going to make a bit of a concerted effort to, um, to, uh, play more games because I usually get tunnel vision when I go to the arcade. I go and play Robotron and Star Wars and um, Bosconian and a few other games. I'll play, yeah, of course I'll play Asteroids and stuff like that. But, you know, I probably need to just start playing more games. I mean, especially now that, you know, more or less the price of admission has doubled. Um, between, you know, doubled now that they're trying to kind of make enough money to keep, you know, to stay in business, and as I pull into the parking lot, they're, they got some pretty good occupancy going, that's good, you know, they'll be open till midnight today, so, you know, this is a good thing, you know, there are people here, you know, there are people who are, who have missed playing, um, video games at arcades, I was lucky enough that, you know, I could go to Pinball Pete's once they reopened, but like I've said before, my, my experience there is just sort of like a place marker, it's a, you know, a, uh, um, what, how should I put it, the, um, yeah, a time marker, you know, because, I only play, like, maybe three games in Pinball Pete's because, yeah, most of the other games either are too expensive or I have no interest in. Okay. Sorry, I just put a piece of uh, chewing gum in my mouth. All right, so... I'm going to... get in there and get on some sticks and hopefully have a little bit of fun... Uh, relieve a little stress, if you will, even though there's not as much stress as there was when I was working for my old job because of the hours. So we'll see how this goes. So this is the end of part one, and I'll be back with part two. So see you in a little while. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. 
You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then. Thank you.